Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Women's sexuality in the 20th century. Lesbianism wasn't talked about then like it is today. How did women who were attracted to other women navigate relationships in a society that barely registered the notion of female intimacy? Coming up, we'll talk with a historian of gender and sexuality about that time period. First, Eleanor Roosevelt. Her relationship with pioneering journalist Lorena Hickok is the focus of a new book, White Houses, by New York Times bestselling author Amy Bloom. It's a work of fiction based on the two women. Now, have you read White Houses? It just came out earlier this month. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. I want to welcome Amy Bloom to the show. She joins us from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Amy, welcome to Where We Live. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, you've written uh, several novels. Uh, this is your most recent one, again, White Houses, that I think uh, was published and was released right before Valentine's Day. Uh, tell us what made you focus on this story um, of Eleanor Roosevelt that many people may not know about. I think there were really two things that drew me to it. One is this idea of a love story that had been disappeared from history and not disappeared by accident, but disappeared through a confluence of circumstances and um, and also the wish on the part of a lot of the storytellers, i.e. the historians, to make it go away because it didn't really fit in with the narrative. And I found myself thinking, what is it like to look at your family photo albums as an old lady to look at your memories and see that you have been literally torn out of the photograph? which was very much the experience for Lorena Hickok. And the other thing was that these were two middle-aged women. I don't think either of them expected to fall passionately in love. I don't think either of them expected to have this romance that really rocked and changed their world. And although the romance did not last for 30 years, the friendship did. And I was really interested in imagining that, imagining two women who found each other, who found love and great pleasure and comfort in each other, and how that relationship changed over the years. I'm, you know, love is one of those things that I find really interesting. And these were two wonderful characters to write about. Uh, many of us know about Eleanor Roosevelt, but Lorena Hickok may be a, a figure that we don't know much about. Uh, tell us about this woman. Well, she was the preeminent female journalist of her time. She was the first woman to have a New York Times byline. And she was frank and feisty and funny and two-fisted. She was what my father would have called a great broad. And um, I think it was a surprise to both of them that they had so many things in common and also many so many things that separated them. But... I think they both really admired each other and appreciated each other and found each other difficult sometimes, but also very compelling. I, I always think of Eleanor in her sort of tall, patrician manner and 
Lorena, who was a lot more of a tugboat, sort of chugging along behind, um, shorter and stouter, um, but nevertheless quite determined. Um, the book White Houses, you tell the story of uh, the relationship from the perspective of Lorena. Why did you decide to do that? Because it's a novel, <laughs> because I wish to ha- give myself as much room to imagine and empathize and illuminate as possible in in the course of writing fiction, because I'm not a historian. And I worked from the facts, but what is more compelling to me is to create a narrative that offers some kind of emotional truth. And Lorena Hickok's voice was not a voice that we have heard, and that gave me a lot of room to develop character and voice. When you uh, you mentioned that you're not a historian, but you did a lot of research uh, into the lives of these two women, where did you start? Well, when I was researching my last novel, Lucky Us, um, that was set in the 30s and the 40s as well, and you cannot research that period without falling over the Roosevelt's all the time. You know, lots of wonderful biographies of Franklin and the extraordinary biography of um, Eleanor Roosevelt by Blanche Wise and Cook, which all three volumes are just wonderfully illuminating, instructive, detailed, beautifully written, And um, those sort of pushed me towards further exploration of the relationships in Eleanor Roosevelt's life and then discovering the 3,000 letters between them at the Roosevelt Library. Um, You know, there were periods where Eleanor would write to Lorena four times a day. Mm -hmm. And um, over the course of their 30-year relationship, there were 3,000 letters. And you can go to the library and you go with your pad of paper and your pencil and um, they will deliver the boxes to you, as I recall, three at a time. Mm-hmm. And that material was just wonderful to read and explore and see the intimacy both in its romantic form and also in its mundane form. I mean, there is as much, how is the dog feeling? I'm sorry, her stomach was upset. Uh, how is Franklin's back? You looked beautiful in that dress. And also, I long to see you and lie, and lie beside you. Mm-hmm. On the um, joining us from the studios of WGBH in Boston is Amy Bloom. She's uh, she lives in Connecticut. She's a New York Times bestselling author, also a creative writing professor at Western University uh, in Middletown. Her new novel White Houses uh, just came out, and, and we're learning more about uh, the research and the time that Amy spent learning about Eleanor Roosevelt and her relationship with Lorena Hickok, a, a prominent uh, female journalist. Uh, and you may not know much about her, but if you read uh, Amy Bloom's uh, recent novel, uh, the story of the relationship between these two women told uh, from the perspective of Lorena Hickok. Uh, It's beautiful prose, and I was hoping you could read a little bit uh, of the book to our listeners, Amy. Oh, I'd be delighted. Um, This is from the prologue, and it's Lorena talking about some of her memories of the relationship. We were in the rose garden, and we ducked behind a tower of pale pink roses to kiss. We walked upstairs and past the Secret Service man, and Eleanor said, Good evening, Wyatt. I'm in need of repair. And he said very warmly, Yes, ma'am. She said, This party will run another two hours, don't you think? And he looked at his watch. That's what we were told, ma'am. We race-walked into her bedroom as if we were hell-bent on finding safety pins. Her sequin jacket slid to the floor, and with it her three-story white orchid corsage, which would have to reappear in an hour or so. And she said, Do not touch that thing. 
She pulled me onto the bed, and I didn't think, I have to remember this. But I have. Eleanor loved the theater. She was mad for Cole Porter, and there wasn't a song of his she didn't know. She nodded to everyone. She clasped every hand. And the house lights dimmed, and Eleanor kissed me on the palm, and she whispered in tune, You're the top. You're Mahatma Gandhi. And I thought, I will remember this, and I do. We think we'll remember it all, and we remember hardly anything. Even when the car is only doing 40, it's still going too fast. The trees are a green and gray blur. The restaurant where we thought we'd die laughing over the misspelled menu has come and gone. Neon green streaks and bolts of flamingo pink blow up the sky on a winter night in Maine, and we think, oh, we will never forget these northern lights, but we do. What we remember is only the curling picture in the left-hand drawer or a gorgeous half-page photo in an old travel magazine. But what we saw when we held hands, lifting our chins to the sky as if we could leap into the jagged, jeweled brilliance above us, was seen for 10 seconds only and never again. That's author Amy Bloom reading from White House as her new novel. I should mention you can read an excerpt of uh, the book on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, you mentioned they had a, a 40-year relationship, uh, not all, all those years uh, filled with romance, but they kept their friendship uh, going. Uh, talk about how you chose, I mean, you mentioned all these letters uh, that these two women uh, shared uh, with each other um, and 3,000 letters, and how were you able to pick and choose uh, which ones that you were hoping to then reflect in this fictional novel? Well, again, because, because it is fiction, I didn't really pick and choose among the letters. There are, there are no particular letters in this novel. It is really sort of the sense of the relationship that I got from the letters, and also, again, imagining imagining what it is like to be madly in love with the wife of a man you admire a great deal. Imagining what is it like to be the first lady and find yourself suddenly in love with someone who, with whom your relationship could bring down the world upon your ears, but nevertheless you long to have it. And so it wasn't so much this letter or that letter, although there are wonderfully romantic letters between them. But over the course of the 30 years, as you see the relationship changing, I also kept in mind the fact that letters are a way in which we present ourselves to our, to our listener, to our reader. They are not snapshots of, of they're not videotapes. They're not accurate representation necessarily of what's going on in the world. It's what we wish to tell the person who's reading the letter. It's how we wish to present the world. And so for me, part of what was so lovely and interesting and compelling about the letters is how do these two women wish to present themselves to each other? And, um, you know, sometimes it was charming. Sometimes they couldn't help themselves, and their letters were filled with complaints. I don't see you often enough. You don't come to see me often enough. Eleanor wrote, you know, I put aside 15 minutes for us, and you didn't come, to which the response was, yes, you put aside 15 minutes for us. And so you do get a real sense of the back and forth and the disappointment and the longing and also the love. How did you choose to depict Lorena's relationship with uh, with Eleanor's husband, Franklin? 
Um, I chose it because I found it interesting and I found it possible. You know, I think there is there there are no letters and there are no videotapes and there are no photographs describing the nature of their relationship. And so again, because I have that latitude in a novel as one would not with history. With history, I would have to say, it could have been. Mm. I imagine then. One might speculate that. But it's a work of fiction from beginning to end, and so I was free to take what I understood about Franklin's character and imagine how it might have been at 2 o'clock in the morning when everybody's had a drink and the White House is quiet, how it might have been between them. Uh, during the time uh, in this part of the book, uh, in the beginning especially, I believe she living at the White House with Eleanor and uh, talk us through that time uh, during uh, when Franklin was president and how uh, there were so many people living at the White House. And, and you mentioned earlier that um, she became known as the first friend, Lorena Hickok, and even though she was t- pictures of her were taken, um, she was ripped out of those pictures. Uh, she was excluded, and you you do um, write that into the book as well. I do, and it was the White House at that time was really like nothing so much as a slightly rundown boarding house. There were tons of other people who were not Roosevelt's living in the house. And also because between the five Roosevelt children, I believe they had 19 marriages, there was a fair amount of in and out with the adult children as well. And um, Lorena's room, her bedroom, adjoined Eleanor's. It was originally Eleanor's sort of sitting room as part of her suite of rooms. And, um, And that's where she had Lorena move in. And I think for Lorena Hickok, who grew up dirt poor and with great difficulty in South Dakota, to find herself sleeping and living in the White House, having someone available to mend her skirts or press her blouse or serve her breakfast, having been a serving girl herself, was an astonishment um, and a pleasure and also sometimes slightly overwhelming. And one of the real fun things about the book was to give this sense of sort of behind the scenes at the White House as it was in the 30s and the early 40s. It was a very different atmosphere, for example, than one might see now. There was a very strong sense that one should not make things too fancy at the White House. It shouldn't be too glamorous that one had an obligation as the president and the first lady to be modest and to have the White House reflect America and also American virtues. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking with author Amy Bloom, uh, the Connecticut resident and New York Times bestselling author, has a new novel out called White Houses. It's a fictional book based on the lives of Eleanor Roosevelt and her close friend and lover, journalist Lorena Hickok. And coming up after the break, um, historian Blanche Wisen-Cook will join us. She wrote a three-volume biography of the First Lady. We're going to learn more from the research that she's done on Eleanor's life and, and ask the question why other historians question the details of Eleanor Roosevelt's romantic relationship with a woman. We'll take your questions, too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. (音楽) 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. If you want to know more about Eleanor Roosevelt, the place to start is with the three-volume biography of the First Lady by acclaimed historian Blanche Wiesen-Cook. Blanche is on the phone with us as we talk about White Houses, the new novel by author Amy Bloom. Bloom is also Wesleyan University creative writing professor, and she joins us today from the studios of WGBH in Boston. Uh, I want to also welcome Blanche to the conversation. Blanche, welcome to where we live. Well, thank you so much. It's really a treat. Amy Bloom, I'm so looking forward to meeting you, and thank you for your really wonderful book. Oh, thank you. Honestly, we are a mutual admiration society. I feel like I could spend the rest of the conversation saying thank you for your extraordinary books. Well, um, it's really kind of exciting that Lorena Hickok is being treated with such high regard um, as we go forward, um, when I wrote Volume 1, in which I deal <clears throat> with Eleanor Roosevelt and Marina Hickok, it, there was great controversy and, you know, the kind of the legacy of the historical denial of lesbianism about which I've written um, in the 70s just continued. And Robert Cohn wrote a wonderful uh, review when Volume 3 came out, Out of the Closet and Into History, question mark, the Eleanor Roosevelt, Lorena Hickok affair, in which historians, as you said earlier, you know, have continued to want to ignore or reject or bury or hide or be neutral about whether this really happened. And... um, I was very clear in volume one, yes, this really happened. Um, In fact, I was very clear in a review that I wrote in 1979 of the first Doris Faber book. uh, She was horrified when she first read the letters and she wanted the letters closed again and for another four decades, please, she said to the archivist at the library, um, these letters couldn't possibly mean what they seemed to mean because... Eleanor Roosevelt was a saint and a mermaid, and so I wrote a review saying, you know, essentially, Pache, Mr. Freud, <laughs> a cigar may not always be a cigar, but the northeast corner of your mouth upon my lips is always the northeast corner. Blanche, and, uh, <laughs> Blanche, I wanted to ask you how you first started on this journey to write about Eleanor. Well, it's really, it really has to do with... The, um, with her um, love for Lorena Hickok and that review that I wrote in 1979. I, I started out in life a journalist and a military historian. Uh, my book on Eisenhower, the declassified Eisenhower, had came out in 1982, and that's when I signed the contract to do Eleanor Roosevelt thinking I could finish it for her centennial in 1984. As you see, that didn't happen. Um, but my first step was to call Joe Lass when I saw this book and decided to review it. And he was a friend. Um, he had blurred my Crystal Eastman book very positively, saying this is a book that should stay in print forever. It's a book about Crystal Eastman, the founder of the American Civil Liberties Union, published by Oxford, and so you get to be friends with people who blurb your books that way, and he said, I said, why didn't you mention Hick in any of your work? And he said, well, I hated her, but let's have dinner. So we had dinner, and he told me why he hated her, and we know that 
she hated him for political reasons. Mm. Um, Tell us more about Joe Lash. Well, Joe Lash was Eleanor Roosevelt's chosen son, and um, he wrote her biography, but he wrote it in terms of Franklin, so it's called Eleanor and Franklin. And he, uh, you know, was he wrote many books, but he was he was the good son. So anything Eleanor Roosevelt wanted him to deal with, he dealt with. She said, "I don't care about power." So he wrote, "She didn't care about power." And then I knew I had a story, um, and it's sort of ironic because Joe Rash and her sons were uh, they wanted to hide the Lorena Hickok reality. And um, the Robert Cohen um, of NYU has found letters between them saying, well, why don't you, who is FDR Jr.'s idea that Joe Rash write a book saying, these letters aren't really rough letters uh, that are unique. Eleanor Roosevelt wrote rough letters like this to everybody. Um, and he wrote a book called Love, Eleanor. You know, he wrote two books of letters say, showing that she had many uh, loving relationships, and this was not unique. But some of and, those letters were burned, right, by both by by Lorena Hickok. Um, actually, the the most interesting disappearance of letters, from my point of view, is um, because I think of Eleanor Roosevelt as a serial romantic, and um, she had well, there are many letters lost. But the most interesting collection of letters that are completely lost um, to Earl Miller. Joe Rash refers to many hundreds of letters between, daily letters between Eleanor and Earl Miller for decades, and all of a sudden all the letters are lost. And and that raises lots of questions. Did she, you know, was Eleanor Roosevelt keeping score or making love? We know about Franklin's romances, but we don't know enough about Eleanor's, and um, we know about Hick, but we don't know about Earl. And, um, you know, it's sort of a fascinating story. And Earl um, was her bodyguard? Well, he was her bodyguard to begin with, and then became a great pal. They traveled together. Um, he bought her her favorite horse. They went off into the countryside and rode together. They shot guns together. They did all kinds of fun things together. Mm-hmm. And their friendship lasted for, you know, as I said, decades. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. So much has been written about Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was someone that had extramarital affairs. Can we talk a little bit more, Blanche, about why you think uh, historians were so troubled to acknowledge that Eleanor Roosevelt had this romantic relationship with a woman because they saw her as a saint? They saw her as a saint, but also I think we, we have to deal with what I've called the historical denial of lesbianism in articles that I've written in the 70s. Um, you know, women in support networks, there was all kinds of bigotry against lesbianism and hiding. For instance, I wrote about female support networks and political uh, activism of Lillian Gold and Jane Addams and so on. And, you know, these were women who had long-term, who were great heroes uh, and friends of Eleanor Roosevelt. 
Nobody has ever written about Esther Lape, for example, L-A-P-E, a most magnificent uh, activist and brilliant political leader, um, and Eleanor Roosevelt's mentor in a lifelong relationship with Elizabeth Reed, an international lawyer whose textbook on international law was used for decades at, at Yale and Harvard Law School and other wonderful law schools. Um, and these women were lesbian women. Um, and there was this denial that, you know, they were lesbian. They were, uh, people would say about Jane Addams, you know, that she was asexual or, uh, you know, that these were just, there was no love in her life. They wouldn't see the, the love between women. And this continued until, you know, the feminist and gay revolution of the 70s and 80s. And now it's triumphed in, uh, it's under attack again, of course, but it's triumphed in uh, this explosion of new work, including this great, you know, work of fiction. But this great work of fiction is based on such keen observation and imagination. Uh, and then there's Sally Quinn's book on uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Hick. And I was on a panel with uh, Sally Quinn, Susan Quinn, and I said, why did, why did she, you know, choose to write about uh, Eleanor and Hick? And she said, to understand her lesbian daughter better. Mm. And I thought that was splendid. So, that, so there's been a great shift and a great change in what we can see and understand. But it's been a long, ridiculous uh, road. Blanche Wiesen Cook is author of the three-volume biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. Uh, she's a distinguished professor of history and women's studies at John Jay College of Criminal Justice and the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, she's on the phone with us as we talk about the new novel by Connecticut resident Amy Bloom. It's called White Houses. You can read an excerpt of it on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Uh, Amy, did you want to chime in on what we've been hearing from Blanche in terms of, of how um, historians reflected um, FDR's uh, relationships and affairs and how um, the relationships that Eleanor had were sanitized. Well, I think sanitized is sort of an interesting word for it. I think that they were they were buried and they were disappeared and they were ripped up and sort of part of the reason I think about sanitized is it sort of makes it sound like something dirty was going on. And I think part of What's striking, uh, you know, Blanche can definitely speak to the response of historians, which was really well documented. And I remember reading those reviews and the controversy that arose from her exceptional biography. And part of what I found myself thinking is one of the things I say to my writing students is nothing is observed without an observer. It is never just a photograph. Someone takes the picture it's never just a sentence. Someone writes it. And I think the observations about Franklin's life and Eleanor's life were made by people whose vision was clouded by what they wished to see. You know, there was a narrative about Franklin and Eleanor's life, which was 
He was magnificent and charming. She was a saint. He broke her heart. She went on to do good works and never knew love again. And if the center of the narrative is Franklin's charisma and power and importance, you can see that a narrative that suggests that she did in fact go on to fall in love again and find fulfillment in a life that was not centered only on Franklin, but also on herself, is a different kind of narrative. And so, you know, history is written by historians, and historians are people. And their capacity to observe and to understand is shaped by who they are and what they wish to see. This is where we live. I wanted to read a, a tweet from a listener. Uh, Annie writes, in regards to Eleanor Roosevelt's affair and the larger denial of queer historical figures that have been written out, what role does, uh, and I think this question will go to Blanche, what role do you think queer studies plays in trying to tell these narratives, Blanche? Well, I think uh, what Amy said is just spot on, and queer studies you know, is just re- revolutionizing our vision. Um, there's in the New York Review of Books, Jeff Ward, who wrote about, who was FDR's biographer, um, very specifically attacked my book called Outing Eleanor Roosevelt, Outing Mrs. Roosevelt. And he wrote about her as cold, remote, endlessly prodding, ugly, terminally insecure, dry as dust, never had any fun, never was any fun. And I wrote a letter saying, how could he do that? Why doesn't he just read the letters? And then he wrote back, and this is an exchange in the New York Review of Books of, you know, 1993, um, a year after my 1992 first volume came out. And he was um, completely unmoved and claimed that Eleanor Roosevelt um, shared society's benighted view of homosexuality. She was appalled by it. It couldn't be. And that was, you know, basically the historical stand for, you know, a little while longer. But we've changed that. And now there, you know, there are gay studies and LGBTQI studies and, you know, the world has moved. Mm. Uh, Amy Bloom, I wanted to go back to you. Um, as you travel and, and talk about your book, uh, what have you been hearing from people um, as they read about this love story? What draws them in? Well, one of the things that strikes me is that a couple of things draw them in. There are, it turns out, a universe of uh, people who love to read historical fiction for whom their favorite form of fiction is those novels that include real and historical figures. I hadn't known that. And there they are, and now I meet them, and I'm very grateful to them. Also, I think there's a big part of the audience who really respond when someone in the audience says, or they ask a question, and I say, love is love. And this is a, this is a novel about love. This is a novel about what happens with love in the long run for some people. And it was my wish to write about an enduring relationship that was not always romantic, not always passionate, but always present in their lives because that was something that I had wished to explore. And so I think there is the love is love. And then one of the things that gives me a lot of pleasure 
is I will often get sometimes a young couple and sometimes an older couple of women who will come up and say, I cannot tell you what this book means to me. I cannot tell you what it means to me to see love represented in this way in a novel that is powerful and beautiful and difficult and real. And those scenes have meant so much to me to see my life reflected. And that gives me a lot of pleasure. How did you get caught up in in this love story, Amy, as you were reading the letters, as you were thinking about how uh, to write this fictional novel that um, described the relationship at different points uh, over that 30-year period? How were you drawn in? Well, I was certainly drawn in by the letters. I was certainly, in fact, inspired, as I say in the novel, by Blanche's biography, which I think is so compelling. I was also drawn in because I am not 25. I am really interested in the long run. I am interested in how life shifts. I am interested in the role that memory plays in relationships. How do we remember that? I mean, memory is almost always a liar. So what do we do with our memories? How do we hold them? How do they shape our behavior? And I was also interested in what happens as people accumulate history with each other. So this was an opportunity for me to write about the things that I love to write about. My kids say that I have four subjects, love, sex, death, and family, which seems to me like plenty of subjects. But every novel is an opportunity for me to explore those subjects in combination and... um, And this was another opportunity in the form of historical fiction. Those aren't bad subjects to focus on because we all have a connection uh, to um, those four subjects. And and Blanche, I wanted to go back to you again. You you wrote this, uh, you spent 25 years, if I understand correctly, writing this three-volume biography of Eleanor. Uh, Tell us about how her legacy remains today. What can we still learn from her? Well, she never stopped growing and changing. And my emphasis in Volume 3 and why it took so long really was to recreate the horrors of the fascist years um, and World War II, which creates for Eleanor Roosevelt, she makes the connection that we can only have peace if there is economic security if there are jobs for all, education for all, hope for all, dignity for all. And she works uh, at the United Nations for the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And and love, as, as Amy just said, love is really her motivating force. And after the first bombs are dropped, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, she actually said, she writes a column saying that we've got to con- to change completely. We must love each other or die. And she means that globally. We are one world, as Wendell Wilkie would say. Um, everything that happens everywhere connects everybody. Everywhere, we are all connected. We are one world. And her vision from you know, the 1920s realization that women must organize for power, we must go door to door, block by block, to build community, to her 
60s vision of global community building is what we need now as we confront fascism and war and violence all over the world. We must love each other Mm. or die. And it's really so important right now to think about Ellen Roosevelt politically because schools, public schools are being closed all over the all over the country. And Eleanor Roosevelt was, you know, she was a great supporter of teachers' unions, of teachers. Um, she said, I can give you full employment and 100% literacy. One teacher, five students. Well, imagine that for a goal. And she was very clear, we would not have peace as long as people were discriminated against and people were still in slavery because she said poverty is about slavery. And and she made these great connections. Um, FDR said it very clearly in 1940, we will have a liberal democracy or we will return to the dark ages. But Ellen Roosevelt went much further, especially in terms of race and the effort to rescue. And here we have a world of what... 60 million refugees around the planet um, and the efforts to rescue and to find haven. I mean, everything is so immediate and current. And Ellen Roosevelt gave us a way out. Blanche Wiesen-Cook, again, is author of the three-volume biography of Eleanor Roosevelt. Blanche, thank you so much for joining our conversation, and I think we've piqued our listeners' interest. If they have yet to read uh, this three-volume biography, uh, now's the time. We we appreciate your time, Blanche. Thank you so much. And Amy, before we let you go, again, um, this is a beautiful book, and and we have it excerpt on our website, wmpr.org, slash where we live, of White Houses, Amy Bloom's newest uh, novel. I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about um, what what you may be working on next. I'd be happy to, although it's, you know, always easier to look forward sometimes, um, especially when you haven't really finished the project. Um, I am working on two projects. One is a television miniseries of White Houses, which I'm excited about getting to work on the script for that. And, um, And people should feel free to write in with their casting suggestions. And also a novel about the eccentric, brilliant difficult, fascinating family of Marie Curie. Does that take you around the world? It does take me around the world. It takes me most particularly to Poland during a very interesting time in Poland's current um, government and national atmosphere and also to Paris. Mm. So, you know, I think it will be um, both complicated and difficult and emotionally Uh, Very compelling research, and also, I'll just say again, Paris. (laughs) Well, we really appreciate you giving us some of your time as you travel around on this book tour for White Houses. Amy Bloom, again, a Connecticut resident, New York Times bestselling author, and we appreciate uh, your time as well. Joining us from the studios at WGBH in Boston. Thanks again, Amy. Thanks for having me. 
This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we talk with a historian of gender and sexuality about women's sexuality in the 20th century. Did women of privilege have an easier time carrying on a same-sex romantic relationship than gay men during that same time period? You can join the conversation too. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we've been talking about the romantic relationship First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt had with pioneering journalist Lorena Hickok. For years, historians wouldn't acknowledge Eleanor as a woman that had a same-sex relationship, despite personal letters that spelled out some of the intimacy between the two women. Now, lesbianism wasn't a term widely used in the early part of the 20th century. During this time period, if you weren't a woman from a privileged background, could you still carry on a same-sex relationship without experiencing negative repercussions. To help answer that question and more, on the phone with us, Anastasia Jones, a Toronto-based historian focusing on the history of gender and sexuality. Anastasia, welcome to Where We Live. It's a pleasure to join you. We were talking earlier with historian Blanche uh, Wiesen-Cook about uh, the what she went up against when, uh, in her biography, um, she wrote about this intimate relationship based on these 3,000 letters between uh, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok. And yet people, there are people that didn't want to acknowledge that this relationship existed. Um, I'm just curious, um, when we look at uh, women who had same-sex relationships in the 20th century, what were they up against? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so definitely one thing to think about is that there was what we would now call homophobia coming from the medical establishment and coming from the legal establishment. So um, gay men or um, men who pursued sexual and romantic relationships with other men tended to be penalized um, to a far greater degree than women. Um, But women, um, especially educated women, would have been aware of the possible repercussions in terms of labeling, um, and they would have been wary of that. Um, But one thing to keep in mind, I think that's important, is that while the relationship between, say, Eleanor Roosevelt and Lorena Hickok and other women like them has been silenced by historians, people like Lorena Hickok and uh, sorry, Eleanor Roosevelt also would have chosen to keep their relationship hidden and silent, and that was to their advantage in a lot of ways, and that was something that was allowed them by culture in early 20th century America, that something that you, you couldn't do now, even if you wanted to. What would happen if the relationship had been outed in the public eye? Well, it's an interesting question. So we would tend to look at somebody like Lorena Hickok now and say, oh, she's a lesbian. And all that needs to happen is for that to come out into the public eye. But it is doubtful whether Lorena Hickok really viewed herself as a lesbian, whether Eleanor Roosevelt viewed herself as a lesbian. Highly unlikely. Um, so it is not the case that their, the true nature of their identity, their sexual identity, as in their lesbianism, could just come out into the public eye. If people were aware of the romantic nature of their relationship with each other, I don't know that they necessarily would have been shocked. Would they have been shocked if they knew they had an ongoing sexual relationship? Probably. But you have to remember that for people um, in their position, it would have been normal 
in the 18th century, in the 19th century, well into the early years of the 20th century, to have a romantic relationship with another woman. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you could have been intimate with this woman. You could have even had kissed her, gone on vacation with her, held her hand, but it didn't necessarily mean that you couldn't pursue relationships with men. So depending on what you're talking about in terms of their relationship, it wouldn't necessarily have scandalized people. Now, I'm curious, uh, when we also were talking with Blanche, uh, you know, she had mentioned, and also just in um, doing further reading, that it was it was uh, more common to, to see a relationship with another woman um, if they didn't want to acknowledge that they were lesbians, that they were just spinsters. Uh, and I'm just curious about that classification. Okay, yeah, yeah, no, that's an important one. So it's it's important to realize that uh, Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt had a wide social circle, and many of these women pursued relationships with other women. So they, these women had, um, many of them were highly educated, and many of them were in positions of power. So whether that was in government, whether that was in the penal system, many, many, many of them were educators, or they were in the settlement system in cities. A lot of these women had decided to pursue their careers and put family on hold, quote unquote. But what they actually did was pursue these domestic relationships with other women. And it's been a historical controversy how much we can really consider these domestic relationships lesbian, quote unquote. Were they sexual or not? It's an ongoing historical argument. Um, but in the public eye, many of these women would have been just read as spinsters. And so there's something really interesting going on here. Um, they would have been read as spinsters and they would have been, they would have faced some scrutiny over that because it was seen as your duty and your destiny to have a family and a marriage. But at the same time, they also would have been celebrated because they had sort of given themselves to society. So they're serving society through their professional positions. This is, of course, mildly ironic because at the time, they, they, many of them, many, many of them had domestic sexual romantic relationships with other women. So it is not entirely the case that they, you know, that they didn't have personal lives. Um, I understand that you did your dissertation on uh, female same-sex intimacy in the early 20th century. Um, how much did this uh, interwar period play into um, having, women having time to explore and to think about their sexuality in, in different ways? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And, you know, ask any historian of gender and sexuality of the interwar period, and they could just, you know, bore you and talk for hours and hours and hours about that question. Um, but there's a lot of things going on during this period that makes these relationships possible and that makes these relationships very intriguing to the public. And something that's happening during this time is social upheaval. So women are increasingly able to make their own way in society. So previously, they would have had to live with a man. So their husband, their brother, their father, you know, live within the family, the embrace of the family. Now they're able to have careers. They can make their own way. They're living alone in cities um, and, you know, pursuing their own livelihoods. Another thing that's happening is that relationships are changing. So previously, historians would say, 
the marriage contract was something that was looked upon as your obligation. Well, during the 1920s, 1930s, there comes to be a changing conception of marriage where marriage is now seen as something that should give you pleasure. It should give you joy. So your um, your relationship should bring you companionship and it should give you sexual pleasure as well. So all of these ideas are kind of stirring the societal pot and they're making some people very excited and at the same time they're making some people very nervous. But you can see that with all these things, the question of female independence is sort of at the core of it. So what will it mean for society for women to be able to choose their own paths socially, professionally, and sexually? And, and women who um, were in the educated class, who came from wealthier backgrounds, they had more flexibility uh, to explore these this sexuality and identity that maybe lower class women would not have been able to? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. So we tend to, when we're talking about the history of sexuality, we tend to want to have a narrative that things get more open, things get more liberal, things get better over time. So we want to think that we have a more sexually accepting culture right now. But the truth is for women like Lorena Hickok and Eleanor Roosevelt, they would have been afforded great freedom in um, in the society that they lived in. So they, you know, Lorena Hickok, as we just heard, was living at the White House. So, I mean, they were able to pursue the relationship. And the reason that they were able to is because they were able to fit into this idea um, that it was socially acceptable for women to have these intimate relationships with other women. So now if we saw an intimate relationship between two women, we would assume it was sexual and we might be keen to label those women as lesbians. In the 1920s and 1930s and even afterward, it's not necessarily the case that you that people would have the urge to do that mm. and that's especially the case if the women were in a position of privilege so Lorena Hickok Eleanor Roosevelt they're they're afforded this um, this greater tolerance in a way because of the lack of conversation surrounding sexuality. And Anastasia, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Anastasia Jones, Toronto-based historian focusing on the history of gender and sexuality. Thank you so much. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Thanks to technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.